0: Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Designers of Paradise. Today's uh, design conversation I'm having with Kevin Marr, who uh, is part of a group called Cranmore Advisors. And we'll give you a link for that and and, uh, another bit of an explanation about kind of how that fits into the regenerative picture in a bit. Um, But I think we're going to launch into this conversation uh, around his work with tree crops in uh, upstate New York in the United States. So welcome Kevin, good to talk to you again.
1: Yes, thanks Eric, thanks for having
0: me. Um, Do you want to give us like a Two thousand foot overview of, of of your work with with these trees as a start, it's kind of like an entry.
1: Sure. Uh, well, I've been excited for the potential of um, tree crops and and permaculture, so um, and agriculture in general to be uh, part of the solution for some of the bigger issues that we face, like climate change, biodiversity, um, human health through nutrient density, and so forth. So. Early on I had uh, come across the work of Mark Shepherd and uh, was really taken by the idea of recentering agriculture around permanent crops. uh, You know, to have less need for the annual tillage and less uh, annual um, use of fuel and so forth and uh, to establish something once and then to be able to manage it generations into the future was a very appealing picture to me and uh, so i started to uh, look at doing that in this region of upstate new york where i live and uh, you know as i started to develop that picture um, mark and i met i met at a workshop that he uh put on in the region and He was also very interested in upstate New York as he thought it would be a a good um, region for his restoration agriculture uh, model. And so we've uh, been working together and uh, part of the idea is to develop something of a hub uh, for these crops um, to make them uh, more viable as agricultural enterprises for people in the region. You know, like any agricultural industry, you have so many facets that actually come together to make um, crops viable. I mean, if uh, the dairy industry is very heavy in uh, in my area, it's the predominant agriculture. But there's so many pieces that you know uh, need to be present in order for that to to function well. And uh, to some extent, that's going to be true with these tree crops as well. Um, you know, for hazelnuts, you need to have the processing. You need to have some of the value added um, uh, potential there. You have to have some of the harvesting equipment that, you know, on any one small farm wouldn't necessarily make sense. But if we can build out that concentration in the region, all of a sudden this is a viable option for the dairy farmers in our region. And that can spread uh, the uptake and adoption. So that's what we've been working at. And um, we've put you know, some hundred acres of these systems into the region the last couple of years, uh, working with different farmers and landowners who are already present and sort of raised their hand to be the early adopters of this. And um, now we're looking to sort of expand the group that we of potential partners that we work with, and we've developed uh, an investment vehicle. So that's something we're uh, launching right now to work with accredited investors and use that as a vehicle to bring in new farmers as well, uh, give them land access and have them trained alongside, you know, this experts like Mark and uh, the the broader group of people that we've been working with in the region. So that's the idea is to scale this out in the region and hopefully it's something that can be uh, copied and, and, and put into other places, maybe uh, with slightly uh, different crop perennial crops depending on where they're located and but I, th- I think it's a sort of thing that has a lot of potential but it's uh it is a little bit different and we need we're working with partners who have sort of that longer term uh, view because it is of course tree crops so
0: yes yeah, so you know two things two two uh early inspirations of mine when I was studying uh, permaculture and um, ecosystem or restoration many, many years ago. Uh, I came across a very uh, early publication by someone named J. Russell Smith.
1: Yes. yep, I have it on my bookshelf here somewhere.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I do too. Um, And I also, I think I even have it in a a PDF version that someone someone (laughs) did the old way, just taking pictures of the pages. And then there was another one, a little that I came across um, a bit later, and it was written quite a bit later by a, a team. One one of whom is pretty famous now with forest farming, and that would be Robert Hart.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: But at the time, he 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 his name was spelled Robert Dehart, and he. I didn't it, know that. Oh. Yeah. He he wrote it with someone named Shoto Douglas, and it was based in the UK, and it was also around tree crops. Yeah. So both really super inspiring books. I think J. Russell Smith's book is better known, and, I mean, the last time I looked to see if I could find a, a copy of uh, Robert's uh, first book, I mean, it was up around 300 some dollars, you know, it's just, it's like his yeah, item now.
1: I imagine, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that he had actually written a book. I'm familiar with him. Um, my my first introduction to permaculture was through uh, Dave Jackey, uh, who wrote Edible Forest Gardens.
0: Yeah, and, I went to the same school as Dave the year before he did.
1: Oh, really? Oh, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, in no, he's, he's a great guy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I, school. I when I was living in New Jersey, I had worked with him to establish a, um, a forest garden in my suburban New Jersey yard. And, and, you know, building off of his model and it's the same, the same type of things that uh, appeal to me for that we're trying to do in a little bit of a broader scale uh, now.
0: So, you know, you know how like when, um, when you design a strategy to accomplish something, one, one of the questions that should come up is how do we know when we get there. Hmm. Right, like what's our and, and that can that can be phrased like what's our definition of success right. Yes. Or not a defi- sorry, not, not definition, but indicator. How do we how, how do we how do we recognize that things are going in the right direction? And for me, although it's really nice to to um, you know meet and work with and speak with people who are kind of aligned, there's so few of us in the English speaking world. You know um, that, that for me, an indicator of success in this tree crop um, push. Would be the day when it's impossible to know everybody involved.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, I like that idea. I like that idea. And, and what's, it is interesting because in this region, there's uh, quite a few different groups that are kind of uh, starting to really look at this and do it. And, and actually, what I find very exciting is we're all using slightly different models to do it, um, which I think is important. And we have to have different approaches. You know some are gonna work better than others and Absolutely.
0: uh Absolutely.
1: you know there's a, a co-op starting in western new york and and we've been speaking with those guys and and uh, hope to collaborate with them and uh yeah and there's there's i don't know, three or four different uh groups that that are uh doing this in different fashions, so it, it's exciting to see and it's not yet to the point where we can't <laughs> keep track of everyone
0: yeah we can't find each other uh yeah I, i've also spoken with a, a guy russell wallach um, yes which, yeah
1: he's he's, he's, he's one of the people of
0: chestnuts right
1: yeah he's and he's in my region in western massachusetts but also upstate new york
0: and um, also also uh, you know through um i met him through conway school also oh i didn't know that i didn't yeah. know that. oh it's, that's it's, it's an interesting little little fraternity there or whatever you call it. it, it's. I don't think we have a term for like non-gendered, right? Because you can have a sorority or a fraternity, but I, I don't think there's an itty that is right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so you should call you should coin one. Yeah, we'll have to coin one. Uh, <laughs> anyone listening to this who has some ideas, uh, give us give us a, um, a comment on the page uh, where we publish this. Let's drop it down now. Let's drop it down to like maybe a hundred foot, and. Take a look at how this particularly suits your bioregion, sure. And in and in your mind, how this also may suit sort of the the, the changes which are underway in the agriculture more generally.
1: Yeah. Well. So, in terms of the the bioregion, this is one of the things that appeals to me about Mark's work is that his starting point is to look at the plant communities that have always existed in a region. And then when uh, building an agricultural system to use the species that serve human needs that are part of that plant community that have been adapted to thrive there. And so historically chestnuts uh, were part of this uh, region of course with the the blight. I mean, there are still chestnuts existing um, But we're, you know, we're using hybrids or Chinese uh, genetics in order to uh, avoid issues with the blight. And then hazelnuts are still present everywhere. And and we're just using um, hazelnuts that have gone through a little bit more breeding so that we have some uh, better yield potential and uh, nut size. And that's actually going to be something that's continuous process. We're sort of looking to continually improve the genetic pool by identifying some of the the best producers. So that's going to be an ongoing project. And so we use those as the backbone of our systems, but then, you know, we are using currants, we're using elderberries, we're using pawpaws perhaps or persimmons, other other things that can fit into the system. And we're interspersing oak and uh, hickories uh, you know, and trying to have like that diversity. Uh, part of what really is exciting for me is by using this model that is native to the region uh, and has always thrived here, we're also building out the, the different niches in the ecosystem for the different types of biodiversity. You know, we're gonna be designing into the systems, uh, you know, little pocket ponds that will attract some of the amphibians faster, the different uh, structure of the plants from, you know, the trees to the, the smaller trees to shrubs, you know, provides more homes for birds and insects. And um, so when you're on the ground in on Mark's farm, for example, it where you're standing can feel somewhat wild, um, but, you know, and then if you look from sort of that 10,000 foot view the you know the the fact that it is actually a pattern and it's designed to be managed uh, becomes apparent but on the ground for the uh the insects and the birds hopefully this feels somewhat like home i i think it's possible uh very possible that humans we can interact with the landscape in a way that builds niches for biodiversity and provides an opportunity for us to, to get the yield from an agricultural system for our needs. So that's our goal. And it's a fun project to work on.
0: I like the fact that that you're bringing in the concept of or the practice of forest dynamics. You know, when, when I first heard about forest farming, I got all excited because I'm a, I'm a child of the East Coast US as well. Um, originally, although I live in Europe now. Um, and then I got disillusioned so quickly because it seemed like everyone was just talking about sort of somewhat modified orchards, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's some woody species in there, but they didn't get much taller than a pear tree. And I was like, no, this isn't a forest. Like, like let's do this with a forest. Like, let's let's bring back the hickories. Let's bring back the the, the white oaks. Let's select the ones with the sweetest acorns. Let's reintroduce the chestnuts. And Instead of cows, why don't we do deer, you know, instead of chickens, why aren't we doing grouse, you know, (laughs) like really push the system.
1: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of potential for that. And, you know, I mean, we are going to be using cows and chickens, but there will be more deer here. There will, I mean, and that's something that we have to sort of plan for and it's a a potential yield, uh, I, I suppose, but no, it's, I think, and we won't, our model is not to go for a closed canopy forest. You know, we wanna be able to, it's gonna be more like a savanna system uh, so that we have more light that's able to get into all of the different layers. And, you know, especially I think in this time when we're concerned about climate, that uh, savanna ecosystem, if, if we can continue to interact and disturb it so it never gets to that closed canopy, it's actually going to be cycling more of the carbon. It's going to keep it in that more, um, that phase that, that has more drawdown. And that's uh, I, I think well suited for our needs because there's all those different layers that we can actually obtain a yield from while also addressing sort of that, that larger need to have a carbon drawdown.
0: It's interesting in terms of the structural diversity, I think, because we don't, we tend not to think of that as much as we think about genetic diversity, for instance, but it's also puts me in mind of, of some of the, I mean, it's difficult to live for, you know, 800 years. So I, I, you know, I can't say I talked to the original authors of some of these pieces I've, I've been periodically reading, but early, early accounts from Europeans coming to North America, Talked often of the park-like quality of the woodlands, and of course we know now that's because the original people um, managed them quite intensively. Yes, yeah. But they, but they managed for indigenous species growing in indigenous, uh, you know, associations. A lot of which uh, used seasonal fire. One of the one of the justifications that the early colonizers. Uh, used for their kind of what became the doctrine of manifest destiny, which was basically God telling you go forth and commit genocide, <laughs> was that well, of course it had been all laid out waiting for them, right? This beautiful park-like paradise, and what they didn't, what they what they didn't and probably couldn't appreciate at the time, was that actually the earlier contacts had spread disease amongst the local population. So they even—I mean—they even talked about coming into places where the villages were still standing, but but there was nobody home. Yes, you yeah. know, and it's like you guys just came through the Black Death. It's still within your oral tradition, and you didn't stop and wonder if maybe a plague had come through.
1: That's yeah, no, that's interesting. No, it was just all laid out there for them.
0: <laughs> yeah, but at um, any rate, I mean, this so that just to say that for for who knows how many hundreds, if not thousands, of years those uh, forest ecosystems were managed closer to Savannah.
1: Yes, no, and, and I mean. The,
0: the post kind of, you know, the choked growth that people now associate with the wilderness or, or with wild forest in, in the, uh, an area with enough rain. And it's, it's, it's been released, you know, it's been released from management. And
1: we just didn't have the eyes to see it, uh, you know, exactly. or the exactly. Europeans, they didn't have yeah. the... The tools to recognize that incredibly complex system that they were observing and why it was so productive. Exactly, Uh, exactly. And I I know that I I recently saw a presentation last year at the northern uh, New York nut growers association about when you uh, search for different uh, species, you will find like the the some of the improved varieties you know the, the ones with the biggest nuts or, or the best tasting fruit are clustered around these native american settlements and you can track um how these same genetics are spread up and down throughout the east coast and you know and that's some of the trade routes and you know it's really interesting to see that work the show not just were they doing this so well in their own region but they were there was a whole a uh, system of, of contact and adoption of this throughout where, wherever it was appropriate for those species, they, they were shared and adopted.
0: Yeah. I mean, you think about something like pawpaw that you mentioned, right? Which is the only temperate zone relative of the um, cherimoya fruit, which has a huge tropical fan, subtropical and subtropical, uh, spread of different species and it's quite it's quite doubtful that, that they could in any way have survived glaciation right <laughs> so yeah. somehow they migrated from the subtropics or, or whatever, wherever the refuges were during those ice ages they migrated north again as a an economic nutritive crop suited to the forest system with a seed much too large for most things to just like carry around like, you know, a flock of birds or something to spread it. So it stands to reason that these were traded.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and and again, that points a picture for me to show that if we look back in our history um, and, and this, you know, there is the potential for us to be interacting with natural ecosystems in a way that we can be a benefit. You know that we can actually help build that richness and diversity, and we have to relearn it. Yeah, we have to relearn it.
0: How much fun is it?
1: Quite honestly, I it is uh, a tremendous amount of fun. <laughs> I, you know, I I don't have a background in farming. This is not, you know, what I've done for my whole career, but the opportunity to be working on this, you know, when I'm at my computer and then. To have those opportunities to get the days in the field where we're planting, you know, ten thousand trees over a weekend or something, it's been a huge amount of fun. It really is, and and yeah, you know, and it feels good. You know, it's it's nice to have that ebb and flow of uh, like physical work uh, and then you know the normal sort of office work. To have uh, different opportunities during the year. Uh, to do those different bits. Um, and i'm I'm looking forward to as it gets more um, varied when uh, some of the the trees we've planted actually get to harvest. We're still a, a couple of years out from that, but uh, that's gonna be a lot of fun.
0: I know that for me, one of the great joys of um, working with perennial crops or perennial perennial plant species in general, and particularly woody ones, shrubs and trees, is that spring moment when the leaves come back out, particularly after a cold winter, and you're like, ah, you're still with me, you know? (laughs) There's there's some delight in that, I think.
1: Yeah, no, and I was just out walking among the hazelnuts the other day and very excited that now they are. They're really coming into leaf, and it's like, okay, everyone's made it through, and (laughs) it it is exciting, and I don't know. I, I do think you know, this is how we've evolved, like interacting with the ecosystem. So it does speak to us and it, it stirs something in us, which is, it's powerful.
0: Yeah, and it, it's it's one of those really strong cases for me um, that fits a pattern of, of uh, kind of human behavior I've observed over many, many years as a, as a change maker. It really, to, to, to say it quite succinctly, quite briefly, People don't always necessarily know what they're missing in their lives, but when they see it, they almost always recognize it. Yes. Right. So, so that opportunity to get involved with the natural world, to follow, as you say, you know, kind of our one of our basics, uh, you know, on the species level imperatives, even you know, to be involved, to be partnering with, with an ecosystem as as a custodian in, in that sense an awful lot of people would be so out of touch with that possibility, but the moment you bring them into the field and they have a day or two of, of, you know, just doing some of that, that activity and seeing some results, it's like, they know that that's a part of their life that that they want to keep.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and, um, it is something that people feel quickly when they're in those uh, situations. It's, it's just, buried deep in our DNA,
0: it seems like. We're gonna take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come? Find out more about Mind and Media at That's mindandmedia.com. That's M I N D A N D M E D I A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where I'm having a great conversation here today with Kevin Marr from Cranmore advisors, all seeded, as it were, by chestnuts, hazelnuts, and other forest farming crops. You mentioned something about local, other local um, landholders or, or farmers, farmers, foresters maybe, um, in upstate New York who are trying some stuff for themselves, maybe, maybe looking a little bit more closely at, at how well you do. Can you talk a bit more about, about how that might be spreading?
1: Sure, so let me see, I guess it was 2019, we did the first planting here on my farm in in upstate New York of hazelnuts. And while we were doing that, we actually partnered with a local um, land preservation uh, group, the Agricultural Stewardship Association, who does great work um, putting agricultural easements on properties in in the region. And we had a, Mark gave a public talk And uh, immediately after that, we had uh, a woman in in the audience come up to us and said this was exactly the sort of thing she'd been looking for on her farm. And we had uh, Lori Nickerson of Hayberry Farm. She's fabulous and she dove right in. I mean, we actually had, uh, right after that, we planted I think six, seven acres of hazelnuts on on her farm and she's since gone on to do an entire water management system on her farm, added, you know, a few thousand chestnut and, you know, interspersed with oaks and hickories and other things to end. She had already had a blueberry operation. So she, she already had this perennial mindset. And so she's, she's sort of one of the the lead adopters in the region, but we've also, so we've done three pretty good size uh, installations for people like her in the region. And then, uh, so I, I guess one, two, three. Four. We, we're probably at about eight different farms in the region now that have uh, done this to some extent. You know, from anywhere from like a half an acre up to fifty or sixty acres. One of the things that is exciting for me, I um, I've talked with a number of uh, dairy farmers who are uh, curious uh, about what we're doing, and I. Th- you know, it wouldn't be a big deal for them to to put in rows of trees or uh, some hazelnuts, and um, they can see the benefit. But you know, they need to see that fully developed way to bring everything to market. So I think those are the people who are sort of keeping an eye on it, and we can show that we're making this a commercially viable enterprise uh, by building out the concentration in the region. That's when you're going to see people. Uh, jump on board a little bit faster you know because there is uh there is the land and this can be designed in a way that could work with a dairy system without without too much uh adjustment
0: when you say dairy system are you referring to the old style dairy co-ops
1: uh well no, i was thinking more like the on the ground um operations in terms of haying Uh, You know, we can design a system so that they can continue doing their haying in between the rows of trees. Um, You know, so while these trees are maturing in the background, they continue their their normal operations and really only giving up a small amount of the footprint.
0: So it's kind of like alley cropping or silvo pasture.
1: Yeah, it's all of our practices are sort of, you know, like USDA recognized agroforestry practices. So, and you know, when we do the water management systems, it's all USDA compliant guidelines that that are followed. So it's alley cropping, silvopasture, these things are, uh, they have great potential. And that's part of what we're trying to do is build a model to show how how this can be done here in this region.
0: That's all really exciting to me. When I first learned about these things, when I was uh, still in university, it was only being applied in the tropics. Yeah, right. And I I remember the time going, "That's not fair." It's like (laughs) if this if this works so well, the Department of State, for instance, is is you know avid to promote it in other countries. Why don't they bring it home too?
1: Yeah, and I mean, and people are ex- exploring it, which is exciting. And it, it's there. I think part, one of the challenges is our. We've trained ourselves to have a very, very short time horizon in terms of our outlook on enterprises that we uh, take on. And in the tropics, you're going to get a much faster turnaround uh, for the, you know, things. It's <laughs> if things grow faster there, it's a little more lush. But you know we can ha- we can have such I mean, 15 years we could transform this region, you know and, and really take such a leap forward in addressing the issues that we've sort of created for ourselves. Um, and I know for myself you know 15 years ago seems like not all that long when you think back on where you were. Um, but it doesn't necessarily fit that sort of five or 10 year time horizon that people think of as a long time horizon for, uh, uh, it, certainly from an investment perspective, uh, but there, we need to be able to adopt a little bit of more of a uh, long-term view. And this is the sort of thing we could put things in place that generations into the future can benefit from. And, uh,
0: well, I mean, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? In 15 years, you can move from agriculture through permaculture to culture. Yes. Right? You could, you could see like a chestnut festival starting and, and, and you know, hazelnut competitions and, and these kinds of things which start to give the whole region a distinctive identity tied to its, its food forest production.
1: Absolutely. I, it's funny because that's what I daydream about. that's exactly and when you think of for example americans who go to europe part of it is because there is a culture that's based on the place um you know and it's varied and that's a beautiful thing you know it's wonderful to experience the the sort of rooted nature of these different cultures and uh what the cuisine and the other things that have flowed from that and so yes that's a i i see nut festivals in the future for the, for this region and uh cuisine that evolves to work around them i mean, you know we can have uh and and that would be a beautiful thing i think that adds to the richness of uh, our life uh I, so that's a I'm very excited for that.
0: So, so we'll climb down off that for a sec, yeah, uh, and, and kind of follow that uh, door you you just opened briefly there in terms of the the issues around expectations of investment, I suppose, in in terms of the the time frames of that. Um, and I know that you're working um, to a certain extent with. Um, connecting those dots uh, for other people, other farmers in the area to, to be able to um, be able to finance their startups in this. And I also know that you don't really have the time to go into great detail in this particular conversation with it. But can you maybe just say a little bit more about how maybe Cranmore and, and its, and its uh, connections are looking at that dilemma?
1: Yeah, so our goal from the start has been to scale the adoption of these types of practices. And, uh, you know, we've been working with the, the farmers and the individual landowners to implement these to date. And, but in general, you know, these are people who have been able to bear some of that upfront cost of establishment. And that is, you know, when you talk about the fact that, you know, agroforestry is sort of a policy goal on uh, of so many different of the USDA of of different organizations uh, looking at and say, oh, this has so much promise. um, And but why hasn't it been adopted and and part of that issue is that there is actually, you know, there's a decent size upfront investment and then you have a, a period where you have to wait for the returns. Um, while these crops mature and that's, uh, so that is part of the, the gap that we're trying to solve for, and we're looking at it for, to work with investors who can take a somewhat longer than usual time perspective. You know, we are saying, you know, 15 years plus, to really see this come into being. And you know, and that is sort of there's a funny thing where people have different lenses that they put on depending on the the conversation. you know, for philanthropy, people will, that's one lens and they they can support different things. But then if once you start talking investment, uh, you know people say, well, I expect my money back in five years or certainly 10year horizon is sort of the outside of of what people are generally considering which which is great and it's understandable but if you're trying to have a long-term impact um you know especially with uh, perennial plants there is a need to do that longer-term uh perspective and so we're we're working with people who are also motivated i would say uh for the biodiversity gains for the carbon sequestration you know for the potential to bring in new farmers and have them trained and established because there's so there's a whole suite of other benefits that come along with this and you know and then uh if you have a longer term perspective it can make sense over time financially so that's how we're we're trying to bring the different pieces together to do it and you know people express an interest in seeing agriculture work in a way for to bring in new farmers to increase biodiversity to do the carbon sequestration and we're holding out and saying here's a model to do it and yes you know you're gonna have to take a little bit longer of a time horizon because nature works on its own schedule but not only can we can we can do that and but we can establish it in a way that this continues potentially for generations if we manage it well and that is i think an exciting thing for people who you know there there is the potential to do this in a way that your you know future generations can participate in something that you start and certainly in the region it's going to go on and have all these other potential benefits and so yeah from a, if it is a little bit of a trick cuz once people have their investment lens on, uh, 15 years is sort of an outrageous time horizon. But you know when you, when you get to some of the inst- and part of our, our uh, issue is, you know, there's a lot of institutions that actually do have a t- long-term time perspective, but what we're doing would not yet be um, mature enough or is, we don't have the, the, the economic case, fully proven because they you know they might be endowments or pension funds or other things who they actually need to adopt a long-term perspective because they're managing um, the resources out into the future but um, there we have to prove out the economic model first before we can go to them and say this is going to be viable for you and are other you know,
0: elements of the, of the tree crop well, the species diversity, for instance, that would be recognizable to things like pension funds, for instance, if you had a certain percentage of black walnut in there with its, uh, you know, turnaround as a timber, as a timber crop. Uh, yes. something that they're already familiar with waiting for the value to accrue. Well, actually, yes, there, there
1: are pieces of that within what we're doing. And also, the perennial crops actually do have a lot of investment from different institutions you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and but almonds are a mature industry and it's well understood. So that's sort of a safe you know, a citrus. There, um, you have blueberries, you have uh, hazelnuts in the Northwest. There's some of some of these sp- apples, uh, some of these particular crops that are mature and well understood. And I think, you know, we're we're putting forward a different use case uh, where it's not a traditional orchard where it's a a monocrop and that's what's being managed. So that's one of the differences that I think that we have to prove out. And actually I think it's in the long run will be a more, uh, certainly more sustainable system because we're actually mimicking nature and using natural processes in terms of the the plants that actually work better when in association with other plants, um, but it's it's not quite as clean as just saying well here's an almond orchard, and uh, and that's actually one of the big differences that we're uh, that not we're trying to crack is um, you know uh, establishing an almond orchard is sort of a well understood thing and and you can go to a farm credit. Uh, and get a loan against that for the development costs so you know there 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 is sort of a understood pathway to doing that and what we're doing here is saying well you know what we're doing essentially the same type of things with a little more um, we're using more varied crops uh, but it's the same model and we're going to prove that out here. And and one of the benefits we have, of course, here in New York State, is uh, we actually have good water. And uh, you know, certainly compared to where almonds are growing. Um, and another thing in this region that and this is something I'm excited for is uh, a lot of um, our land here is this sort of hilly, rolling hills, uh, which is lovely, but it's not well suited to sort of uh, the industrial agriculture, you know, where you, you want broad expanses of field and, and to be able to just kind of go on a long flat surface, you know, the, the different agricultures migrated west, you know, to scale up in, in different ways. Well, with perennials, we can make use of this landscape and it's actually, um, so we're going to, we're bringing back a use case on land that you know, there's a lot of area that is now sort of going back to like a wild shrubland
0: in the region. And yeah, that comes back to, to Jay Russell Smith's book, right? Because his whole focus when he was with the USDA was was Appalachia. Yes,
1: exactly. And, and and I know Jay Russell Smith was an inspiration for Mark when he started to sort of develop his model. And um, yeah, it, it it's it's there and it's just waiting to be done. Uh, and you know, we can. We can use this, and and like you said before, this had been done. (laughs) The Native Americans were doing this in their own fashion, and they were using improved varieties and strategically interacting with the ecosystem to keep it headed in that direction that that served their long-term needs. We can do it again, and we can make it make sense. Um, And, you know, but we do need different types of people like we need. We do need people with capital to participate. We do need sort of the more experienced farmers like Mark. We do need new blood coming in new farmers who want to come in and learn these systems and and innovate, you know, they'll take it much further than us down the road, hopefully.
0: So do you um, actively work on the education elements of this to, in, in a way to sort of broaden the increase the net?
1: We're, yes, we're trying to do that uh, now. Actually, that's something you know, we've got a, a couple of new people that are we're sort of drawing in to sort of one young fellow who had his start in uh, ecosystem restoration camps, and he is now. We uh, we had a, when I say we, there's sort of a, a group. So uh, Mark had a, a pretty large planting of hazelnuts earlier this spring and we pulled uh, Ben into uh, work alongside him. And it was a little bit of a trial by fire because it was a difficult experience, but you know he uh, jumped at the opportunity. And there are a group of people that we've been working with and developing some of these skills someone who have with, worked with Mark now for five, 10 years. And uh, so we're building the capacity and we're bringing in new people to do it. And uh, for example, when we establish our investment vehicle farm, we'll be looking to bring in new farmers to populate that and kind of work alongside our network to learn as they go, to implement some of the livestock uh, and, and other things. Yeah, no, that's an explicit goal of ours is to bring new people in and help train them in how to do this. And hopefully then, as this system grows, we'll be sort of training in-house the people to step onto these different farms and help manage it. That's we're trying to grow this entire uh, picture.
0: We've got about eight minutes left um, to to keep this on time. Um, is did we miss anything that you think is needs to be said um, in this conversation?
1: Yes I, I think we have the enough knowledge like we, we have enough knowledge and expertise um, we can see pathways that are going to, address many of our issues that, that we struggle with. Um, Like we have that broad picture of what we need to do, you know, and we, and there are people around who have the expertise to do it. It's, you know, it's one of those things we know. I don't think we really need, I mean, it's always going to be important to continue to do research and to learn more as we go. Um, But at this point we have enough knowledge to begin right now. And to implement solutions to these issues, at least in part, you know, I mean, it's, I'm never going to say that we're, we have uh, the perfect solution for everything, but we have enough to know that we can start today and have a tr- and have a large impact. And we really just have to start doing it. It's like we have to move from this talking about it and get roots in the ground. Because, you know, we have to re-engage with natural systems and let them do some of this work for us. That's what they've done over millennia. And so I think it's, you know, we have, we have to move. And also we have to move. So that moves us from a place of fear to hope. Like we have, we have things that we can do. And uh, that's really exciting. And it's actually quite fun to participate in this process. And it's, you know, so I think that's the big takeaway for me is like, we may not have a perfect knowledge but we know enough to start. And the only way we're really gonna learn more is to, to dive in and learn as we go. And, you know, it's a, it, it's I can't think of anything that would feel more worthwhile for me
0: that's a beautiful way to sum it up um Kevin if if people listening to this want to contact you or if they want to uh, you know kind of follow more closely as things develop where would you send them or how 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 would you ask them to contact you yeah
1: so um Cranmore advisors is, com is our website it's c-r-a-n-n-m-o-r advisors and Cranmore is uh, Gaelic for big tree. Uh, sounds a little fancier, um, but that's, you know, my my email and, and contact information is there. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Kevin Maher, M-A-H-E-R. So yeah, no, I always love connecting the people who are interested in exploring these types of things and uh, often get a chance to learn from them as well, so.
0: And if, if um... They're interested in possible upcoming trainings or anything like that as you develop them. Would would they register that interest through Cranmore or? Yeah,
1: and you know, one of the things we we may be I may be helping to host a. Uh, actually, I, I think in July I have to I have to get it um, set, but we're gonna have some of the northern nut growers uh, potentially come into the region to explore some of what we're doing um, and. Yes, we're going to also have uh, workshops perhaps around planting, you know, where we're, and maybe while we design some of these projects to bring in people to observe the process, see how it's done, and, you know, actually be able to participate uh, somewhat. So that, like, that, that's a, an exciting thing that I'm looking forward to because we, we want ways to bring in as many different people to participate in this as possible and the education is part of it. So yeah, we have a contact sheet on our website. People can just drop me a note and uh, we will keep them in the loop.
0: Beautiful, I'm excited.
1: Yeah, thanks, Eric, this was fun.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Kevin, for your time and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure.
1: Sounds good. All right, thank you. Have a good day. You too, bye. Bye now.
0: Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.